Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Is there anything I can do to make it better, honey? You know what you have to do. Take Coldplay off my phone? I did. Honey, I took all their songs off. Do you want some juice? Don't talk to me about juice. What about Nickelback? I took them off my phone, just like you said. Billy Joel? I thought Billy Joel was okay. Because, you know, he's just different, right? You like some of his songs. The problem is, it's on Spotify. That means it's public. That means people can see. So Dennis comes up to me and says, Your girl, she listens to Phil Collins. No, honey, no, I never listened to Phil Collins. You told me he was a weenie. You think I'm prejudiced. You think I'm old and set in my ways. Well, you're 117. As of this Thursday, yes. But it's the society we live in. I don't make the rules. People find out you listen to lame music, it comes back onto me. Honey, we could fight for change. Change will never come. People will always hate Nickelback. Now, I just want you to promise that this conversation stays between us. Yes, I understand, honey. I would never want to find out you made a recording of it. I know, honey. If I turned on some radio show and heard myself talking about Coldplay, I would just clutch my chest and die. Is that for sure? I told you never to... Oh, 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 ah. Let's see, which pocket does he keep the will in? Today on The Scramble, the era of instant replay racism, a French economist who's more than a fad, and big data about baseball fans. And now his letter arguing for the canonization of Dudley Moore was ignored. Again. Colin McEnroe. The right amount of time has gone by. I, I double-checked. He should be eligible. All right, so uh, let me tell you what's going to happen today on The Scramble. Wow, this scramble, it took a lot of, I mean, we just, you know, Betsy Kaplan did a great job tracking everybody down. It just seemed like there's a lot of studying for this scramble. I don't know what to attribute that to. So let me tell you what's coming up ahead, and then we'll plunge right into now. Uh, Michael Sean Winters, our go-to guy, except no substitute, uh, is uh, going to join us in the second segment to talk about the double-barreled canonization yesterday of two different popes um, and uh, and sort of what that means and kind of how, how the notion of sainthood um, Sometimes has a sort of uh, geopolitics to it. Uh, we'll also talk in the final segment about Steve, to, to Steve Russian, uh, one of our favorite sports writers. Uh, Steve is going to talk about the New York Times massive big data crunching yesterday of the geography of baseball fandom uh, and a redrawing, among other things, uh, of what Steve Russian termed the Munson-Nixon line. The Munson-Nixon line, after, named after Thurman Munson and Trot Nixon, is the line in Connecticut that divides Red Sox territory from Yankee territory. But this this project by the Times, it looked at baseball fandom all over the United States. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about the implications of that and whether things like that are even terribly useful. Uh, not that they need to be useful to be good, right? John Ruskin said that, that uh, some of the most uh, beautiful things in the world are useless. 
peacocks and lilies, I think, were his two examples. All right. So anyway, here in the first segment, we're going to talk to the editor-in-chief of Salon.com. He's also the editor of the online literary journal Five Chapters. Uh, His name is David Daly. Uh, He joins us now. We're going to be talking uh, about chiefly two things, uh, as the intro that you heard implied or referred back to. Uh, The first will be some instances of people being caught on tape um, saying things that uh, reveal aspects of their racial attitudes, sometimes knowingly caught in type, tape, sometimes not. Obviously, the head of the marquee, the top of the marquee on this one is Donald Sterling, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, who was almost all anybody talked about all weekend long. Uh, and then towards the end, we're also going to talk about uh, Thomas Piketty, the French economist uh, who is ex- experiencing his own version of Beatlemania, but also becoming kind of a political football, uh, to use a cliche. So David Daly, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Colin. How are you? Great, great. So um, we're going to talk about Donald uh, Sterling. I, I sort of decided not to play the tape and, uh, of Sterling talking for two reasons. One, it's just unbelievably creepy. Uh, and two, because of its sort of nature and its provenance, I mean, we're not even like 100% sure, we're 95% sure that this is Donald Sterling, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, talking to his mistress, uh, and he is uh, asking her uh, to delete uh, various pictures of herself and African-American people, especially African-American athletes, from her Instagram account. This turns into a larger conversation uh, about his attitudes and about his uh, reluctance to have her, uh, said mistress, who is a person of mixed race herself, seen uh, at his games in public with uh, African-Americans. He even says, don't come to my games with Magic Johnson. I don't want to see you there with Magic Johnson. Not that Magic Johnson was necessarily clamoring for that opportunity. So, uh, Dave, where, where, where does this lead you? Where do you go with this story? You know, I, well, I think, I think first of all, that uh, the tape you did play um, would have been very, very controversial if leaked. Yes. Leaked to certain optimists in the music criticism world. Of I course, mean, you simply, you know, cannot be talking about Phil Collins and Hollow Notes and Billy Joel in those, in those terms in these days. I mean, oh, let's face it, it, it is 2014 now, and uh, we're supposed to be far beyond that kind of, you know, judgmentalism. Right. I'm glad you um, see that. You know, but um, uh, it, this is such a remarkable story. I think, especially sort of following so closely after the only story we all talked about last week, <laughs> which was Clive and Bundy, mm-hmm. the, you know, hard scrabbler, tough bitten Nevada rancher, uh, who for the last, uh, you know, 20 years was, um, using public lands he did not want to pay for. And when the bill came due, decided to gather a militia to push them off of the land that was not his and, you know, had Rand Paul and Fox News and Sean Hannity and, um, you know, a a large part of the Republican Party rise in chorus uh, to defame the overreaching feds, you know, up until, um, you know, Bundy went just a little bit too far and decided to... um, that fill us all in on his theories on on race and slavery. Um, you know, theories on race and slavery, which are not necessarily that far from the mainstream of modern Republican thought. The idea that you know it simply is slavery to have people on, you know, on 
on public welfare programs that you know that it simply is another form of of slavery too you know some in the modern conservative movement um but you know bundy was then you know dropped by roger ailes and sean potato and sean hannity is the as the hot potato that he became um and was probably the, the happiest person in america when donald sterling emerged on tape saying kind of similar things and you know just as bundy wanted to use the public land to you know make a um and thought that he had a right to use public land for free um and that this made him an american hero um i think some of the things you hear donald sterling uh saying kind of echo right back to to the sort of makers versus takers argument that um, Republicans love to talk about um, when they are talking about class and money and and job creation and and income inequality. Um, Sterling in this tape, in addition to sort of all of the noxious racial things that you you talked about, um, in the tape that a deadspin has, he suggests that essentially the, the, the owners of the NBA um, are the ones who put on the show, um, and that the players themselves, he gives them, you know, houses and cars, um, you know, makes all of that possible. Um, the idea that their, you know, hard work, um, that the actual labor involved here um and you know i think that this is where it all kind of comes back around into into capital and the and the pickety book as well that that the uh he has this horribly paternalistic attitude towards what kind of a product the nba is putting on the floor he actually seems to think that it is about the owners um and what they have built as opposed to the players and what they have created and you know i think that you know that that, that's an argument that has amazing echoes of what's happening in northwestern where players want to unionize um and voted on that last week we won't know the results of that for a little while um but you know it's the it's a very similar argument that you hear there um you have pat fitzgerald the, the the coach of Northwestern saying, who are you going to trust? Is it going to be us, the coaches, um, and the administrators here at this at this university? Are you going to trust us with your health care, with uh, your scholarship, um, or is it going to be some outside group? Oh, and by the way, here's an iPod, an iPad, um, you know, vote no. Uh, it is it, it is a fascinating time when you see the divide between sort of who who actually makes who actually takes and the difference in self-image between the two. Um, the actual takers in this in this culture think that they are the the makers, um, and the makers like. Um, Mr. Napier of the University of Connecticut go to sleep hungry the night before 
a basketball game for the national championship. Um, as we go along here, but and we, we won't have a lot of time, so if there's something that you want to say about the Donald Sterling controversy or anything that uh, Dave Daly is saying right now, give us a call at 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Um, you know, and if you wanted to uh, uh, sort of add to or encrust that uh, argument for uh, a paternalistic structure within sports, and I know Salon is, uh, has got, had some things up about it, uh, the latest one of those, of course, is the Buffalo Bills cheerleaders, who uh, not only are radically underpaid, uh, but are instructed on how to carry out basic aspects of personal hygiene, how to wash themselves and things like that. <laughs> and when they reared up on their hind legs and, and made a similar move uh, towards uh, some kind of fairness, uh, both the Buffalo Bills simply disbanded the cheerleading squad. But Dave, I wanted to, just to go back and look at reactions um, and, yeah. and ways in which I think there may be slight differences between Clive and Bundy and, and Donald Sterling. And, and, um, and one of those would be, you know, Bundy, and I suppose producer Betsy Kaplan rightly uh, raised uh, the the issue of Phil Robertson, the the uh, Duck Dynasty guy, Duck who's Dynasty, sort of yeah. sim- kind of a similar set of remarks to to Bundy's. And sometimes these guys strike me as having a kind of naivete about how this is going to go over. They're they're isolated enough. Uh, in their in their respective worlds, so that they don't understand how badly their remarks are going to play. They say these things. They 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 don't anticipate a great outrage about them. Um, they're not trying to thread any particular needle. They they just sort of openly say these things that 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 seem pretty repellent from a 2014 perspective. Whereas mm-hmm. Sterling, as we know, Sterling was on the verge of receiving his second lifetime achievement award from the Los Angeles NAACP, and and to me, you know having really closely examined his record over years and years and years, I'm a little bit troubled by the willing, the sudden unwillingness of everybody to tolerate him, including the players. You've got LeBron James, you've got Kobe Bryant, you've got a whole bunch of players saying, well, I, wouldn't, I, can't, I couldn't play for that guy. Well, yeah, but you could. I think people have known that he was a bad guy for a long, long time. Mm. Um, there is a long record of... Of 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 his of his horribleness on on racial issues and also on on basketball issues, uh, but and also as far as as how he made his fortune. I mean, yes. he's essentially a billionaire slumlord who, over time, has paid millions and millions of dollars in fines to the justice department over uh, pushing African Americans and Latinos and other minorities out of his out of his apartment buildings um so the idea that this is a new that this is new information yes i mean i think that um lebron james and magic johnson and all of these folks probably should have um you know spoken up against him a long time ago uh this is a a pretty ugly character. Uh, if you go back through some of the old, old court uh, cases, which your people are beginning to do now, um, the, the the lawsuit filed against him, excuse me, by Elgin Baylor, mm-hmm. uh, the um, the former general manager of the team, and and um, a um, you know an icon as far as African-Americans in the NBA, um, you know, alleging all kinds of, of horrible racial mistreatment. Um, and uh, this, 
Now, this has been a bad dude for a long time, and I hope that someone looks into the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP because, you know, clearly this um, – I would love to know, you know, what kind of donations um, from Mr. Sterling towards that organization have have perhaps played a role in, in his winning – you know, David, let me grab a call or two a here. We've got, yeah, we got a couple of calls coming in here. Uh, here's uh, John in Burlington. Hi, John. How you doing? Just fine. Uh, your guest, I'm glad I uh, finally heard somebody say it, because I'm wondering if the NAACP, or at least that chapter, that area, if uh, there's, you know, is there any, uh, what's their credibility now? I mean, uh, all you all you can make out of this is uh, green, right? Well, I, I don't think that this is a new phenomenon either. I, I think that there are organizations across the country that do kind of specialize in kind of green and whitewashing uh, certain capitalists uh, who are who are smart. If you're a smart businessman and you know you've got, I mean, we, we can make a list as long as your arm uh, of businessmen and rich men who have over the years made sure that they did enough charity, uh, won enough humanitarian awards to take the curse off, off of some of the other things that they did and said. This isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. But Dave Daly, I certainly agree with you. It'll, it'll be interesting to fly-spec the NAACP-Los Angeles chapter relationship, uh, specifically with Donald Sterling. I think it's terrible that the NAACP has uh, appears in this case to be one of the organizations that would be involved in that kind of white and greenwashing. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 would, I would think better um, of them. I think it's a real... A disappointment, and it's not as if there have not been stories about this over many, many years. Um, I don't know when they gave him the the first of his lifetime achievement awards, but um, I would imagine that at the time they did, it was not a secret that, that this was a noxious man. You're right. It was 2009, I think, and that was not a secret. Let me grab one more call here uh, with David Daly from Salon.com. Here's Pete in New Haven. Hi, Pete. Hey, Colin, long-time listener, first-time caller, like your show. Um, great topic today. You know, I'm not a racist, never have been, and don't intend on becoming one, but I want to play devil's advocate here. How many people have ever worked for a boss they don't like but stayed because they had to pay the bills and pay the light bills, right? Mm-hmm. So you got a bunch of guys who are on a team who are basically millionaires, and they're upset with this guy because it goes against everything they believe in. Well, if you're really that upset by it, quit. Put your money where your mouth is and quit. But you know what? They're just as bad as he is because they want the money and they're in it for the money. Since when did the NBA turn out to be some organization that everybody has to look up to and they're a public entity? They're a business. They're a for-profit organization. They don't like their boss and they don't like what he has to say. But since when does this guy have to sell his team because he was an idiot? and opened his mouth in public and said something that was rude and impolite. Nobody else would have to. Although I mean, there, there is a little bit of a, a history with this, if you recall Marge Schott at the very uh-huh. end of the, uh, the Marge Schott era where she really kind of got uh, even sort of pro-Nazi in exactly. her remarks. She was gradually forced out of ownership of the Cincinnati Reds. So, I mean, when somebody is a complete embarrassment to the sport that they're in, uh, although there may not be actual mechanistic steps that can be taken with Marge Schott, I think it was done a little bit more behind, I think she was suspended publicly and then behind closed doors the owners kind of gradually bought her out of her position uh but you know there is some some history of that although uh, dave daly we we need to move on to thomas piketty really quick here but his 
the, the other part of his question is an interesting one, which is, you know, obviously we know the NBA will probably suspend Donald Sterling. They may ask, tell him he can't attend playoff games. But mm-hmm. that strikes me as kind of a kindergarten punishment. And, I mean, one possible response by the players would be not just the Clippers, but all the NBA players to all sit down for, you know, one playoff game. Uh, are you expecting or, or even hoping for some kind of massive demonstrative response from the athletes? I think it would be a terrific response. I think the likelihood of it is just about zero. Um, you know, I think I think Michael Jordan, when asked many years ago about you know why he didn't you know come out and and talk more vehemently about politics and and racial issues, you know, famously you know said Republicans buy sneakers too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the NBA is a marketing dream um, and that there's you know millions and millions of dollars on the table and that you don't ordinarily see people taking bold and and provocative political stances um, you know I, I don't necessarily think that they have to at the same time you know um, you know I think it is it, um, when you have these guys who have been training and competing their entire life to, you know, and then that they're in, you know, the prime performance years for such a small window to get to the playoffs to expect them to kind of forfeit or sit down, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you necessarily ask that of them over stupidity from an owner. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what they do next. Yeah, but, I, th- I think um, you're right that the yeah, chance, I don't expect the, it. Yeah, the chance is very close to zero. Hey, I want to. I'm trying to save some time here because uh, I know you want to talk a little bit about Thomas Piketty, his book Capital in the 21st Century, which I would like to publicly announce today. I'm not going to read, not because I have any objection to it, other than I'm reading The Goldfinch right now. That's 800 pages. <laughs> That's all. I can't do another 800 page book this year, and I wouldn't even understand Piketty's book if I did read it. But we know basically what it what it says, or at least people think they know basically what right. it says. And it's now turned into, I mean, I I hate to keep using this cliche, but it really is a a political football. It's just being sort of thrown back and forth by by op-ed columnists on on either side of the divide Um, and and interpreted almost in starkly political terms, although I'm not sure that Piketty himself uh, would really welcome that. So um, what's your take? I know you're a little bit uh, disappointed in the way the conversation about this book is unfolding. You know, I think that the criticism of it is kind of fascinating and, and that it's been especially interesting to watch what the New York Times has done in the last couple of days in which kind of both of the Times' House conservatives, um, you know, Sam Tannenhaus um, and then David Brooks, have have both launched attacks on the book, not so much on the ideas, or the statistics, or the 700 pages of of argument, or deep historical analysis about European and American um, political economy, but they like to take shots about people are buying this but not reading it. This is an intellectual fad. 
this is simply um, the book has become a fashion a statement, and it's an attempt to sort of call the book. Um, it's an attempt to negate the argument that he's making by sort of using, as you said before, kindergarten words um, to, you know, denigrate what has done here. Um, and, you know, coming from David Brooks, who seems to think that income inequality is not an issue in America because they keep opening up Whole Foods, um, and it is sort of a really phony argument. Um, and, you know, it, to me, it, it, it suggests some real fear and concern that, you know, this is a book that just might change the the narrative around the way that we talk about income inequality in this country. Um, I mean, um, they like to sort of hold it up as, as, oh, it's like, it's like, it's like Francis, uh, Ukeyama or, or Alan Bloom, kind of a fashionable book that everybody bought and put on their coffee table. Um, but what if uh, this is fast, Food nation instead, um, you know, you know another you know, a complicated 700-page book narrative that you know topped the uh, bestseller list, and um, and I think you know did have real change as far as how people looked at that industry. You know, I, I I'm behind the Piketty curve, as I said, but uh, you know, even what I've been able to glean about it from my Piketty for Dummies phone app that I've installed, you know, I mean, it it it's, it surprises me. Well, it doesn't surprise me really, but if I were Piketty, I guess I would be a little bit depressed in the degree to which American commentators begin to argue this out in pretty much starkly MSNBC versus Fox News terms. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and his part of his argument, and what one one half of his argument, of course, is that this this notion that in periods where where investment where capital investment grows faster than the economy you really do get this widening gap between haves and have nots or haves and have somethings uh, but the other half of his argument is that this is essentially a global question that really can't be right. confined inside national borders anymore that that solutions if there are going to be solutions or remedies they have to be contemplated at a global scale um, in which case you know it really doesn't make that much difference you know, whether Mitch McConnell's right or Chuck Schumer's right. I mean, we really are talking on another theater, which seems to be something that a lot of the commentators are missing. There is there is a lot in this book that needs to be talked about. Um, his argument about the meritocracy, his argument about sort of what actually drove um american growth and and the and the and the lowering of income inequality in the years after world war 2 um and the kind of big american post war boom and the and the birth of the middle class um there are fascinating arguments and and conversations and lessons to be drawn here if uh people are willing to actually you know uh, Put uh, talking points down for a moment, um, you know, and actually engage with the uh, data and the information and the arguments. Um, unfortunately, I think the likelihood of that happening is probably about the same as 
It's a basketball player <laughs> sitting down and not playing. All right, David Daly, editor-in-chief of Salon.com, uh, also editor of the online literary journal Five Chapters. And as of this afternoon, the co-founder with me of Piketty for Dummies, a phone app, which will be available on most buying platforms by Wednesday uh, if we can get things going. So uh, we'll talk this afternoon, Dave. I look forward to it, Colin. Always right. a pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. We'll be back with, with Michael Sean Winters on double-barreled canonization after this. All right, we're back. Uh, as I said before, I have not read the Tomas uh, Piketty book, but I did rewatch the section of The Hobbit, Desolation of Smog, where the dragon is sitting on the big piles and piles of gold. And I think that's basically it. I mean, I think I basically sort of got the whole uh, Piketty theory uh, distilled right there. All right, so uh, yesterday, and actually speaking of people who have been reading their Tomas Piketty, uh, Pope Francis today uh, tweeted, inequality is the root of social evil. Uh, so uh, he may be on page 50 or 60 by now himself, uh, but we, we may allude to that. But what we mainly want to talk about with Michael Sean Winters, our go-to guy about all things uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, is about the double-barreled canonization yesterday. Michael Sean Winters, a writer and blogger at the National Catholic Reporter. He writes the blog, Distinctly Catholic. Don't try to get through any understanding uh, of modern Roman Catholic affairs without subscribing to that blog. Michael Sean Winters, so yesterday uh, we saw something that, well, you don't see every day. In fact, you pretty much never see, which is the canonization of two fairly, fairly recently sitting popes on one day in uh, the the Vatican. Um, so what's this all about? Is there a way to sort of talk about it uh, apart from just sort of the level of holy inspiration? Is there a way to talk about this as a practical matter? Uh, yes, of course. I think there is. Uh, the Pope was sending a message uh and I, it's worth commenting that the other unique thing about the ceremony was that there were two popes in attendance. Pope right. Benedict uh, showed up. This was the first time he had been at a public service outside of St. Peter's Basilica since his resignation. Um, what you saw here, Pope Francis had, uh, Pope Benedict broke the rule for um, John Paul II, which said you can't start a canonization effort until the person has been dead five years, and he waived that. And then Pope Francis waived the requirement of a second proven miracle for Pope John XXIII. So clearly he was trying to send a signal uh, to the whole Church that if you want to understand the Second Vatican Council, which was this seminal event from 1962 to 1965 where all the bishops of the world came together, issued these documents, which is what seminarians spend their time you know, figuring out what the Church is all about, uh, what what our catechism is drawn from, that uh, you can't understand that event without reference to John the Twenty Third, who convoked the council and kind of got it going in this kind of optimistic sensibility. You also can't understand it without understanding John Paul, who in you know twenty five years as pope uh, really fleshed out some of the points of controversy uh, that the council uh, left unanswered. So it was a balancing act. Uh, John Twenty-Third is certainly a, uh, seen as a champion of more progressive Catholics. John Paul II, a champion of more conservative Catholics. Francis is, I think, trying to say, look, we need, we, we need as a church to be breathing with both lungs. 
You know, I, I think, though, t- for those of us with fairly primitive understandings of the nature and history of sainthood, this everything that you're saying makes perfect sense, but doesn't sound the way that saints have been typically talked about to us. Usually we're thinking deep into the past and we're thinking about uh, about people who've been martyred, people who have struggled with afflictions, people who have healed other people's afflictions, people who are prominently associated uh, with miracles. Now, I know that there are a lot more saints than the ones that just pop into in to people's minds. But I think for a lot of people, that idea of, well, you can't understand the recent history of the church without understanding these two men is different from, well, these two men therefore ought to be saints. It is. And I think, you know, this was the problem I had with the process is uh, even the way we refer to them, where Saint uh, Pope John Paul II, Saint Pope John the Twenty-Third, uh, the church canonizes men or women. And so I would prefer that we said St. Carol Wojtyla and St. Angela Roncalli, uh, because the verdict yesterday was not that they, uh, you can't question this decision or that decision that they made as, as popes. Obviously, there was a fair amount of criticism of John Twenty-Third over the years from conservatives who felt uh, he unleashed chaos on the Church by calling the Council. And there's been a great deal of con- uh, concern about John Paul II, especially because of his inability to or unwillingness to move on the sex abuse crisis. Um, that said, uh, one of the things that happened in John Paul's tenure is he canonized more saints than any pope in, in, together in the previous 500 years. Mm-hmm. So the idea, I think, is that the, the Church is becoming more willing to canonize people with greater frequency and, and more recent heroes to kind of hold them up. I mean, even the, the fiercest critics of John Paul II have to admit, this is a holy man. This is a man who, who you could see it was, was lost in prayer. Um, does that mean he was flawless? Of course not. None of us are. Um, so I think the Pope, was, uh, Pope Francis, in deciding to canonize them both, was saying, look, these are holy men, uh, and, and you can see evidence of their sanctity all around in their lives. Uh, there were investigations to make sure that there were no personal scandals um, that, that would argue against their sanctity. Uh, but I think this was fundamentally driven by politics. Well, I think the other thing we have to say about uh, Pope John Paul II and his uh, 482 uh, canonizations is they, he did recognize something that's, uh, I think, part of the essential nature of the saint, right? The saint is, in in many respects, the, the religious message and, and the church made flesh but also made human scale. And, and so in order to... to apprehend the church in order to appreciate the church, it's really helpful if there's somebody who's, you know, from an area within 500 miles of where you're standing. And and it did seem as though in, in internationalizing the church during his 26-year papacy, one of the things John Paul was really interested in doing is having saints who looked like the people who live in place X and, in fact, were from some neighbor, some neighboring area or adjoining area of, of place X. Right. you got to have just you want to have a cabinet that looks like America. You want to have uh, uh, saints who look like the world. Exactly. And I think, you know, uh, the gospel reading yesterday was uh, the story of Thomas doubting uh, before he had seen with his own eyes. And alas, most of us uh, are, are, have that doubting Thomas uh, side of our personalities. And, and sometimes all the church, church's teachings and, and, and can seem very highfalutin. The value of, of sainthood is, is, as you say, it, it enfleshes it. It makes it more accessible and says, look, this is what we mean. This is, you know, when you look at Mother Teresa, when you look at John Paul II, when you look at it, this is what a saint looks like. 
Um, and, they, and, and interestingly, they're very, very different. Uh, right? I mean, there's, there's widely different personalities who become saints. Uh, but they are more accessible sometimes than the kind of arid doctrine. I think this is an important insight into Catholicism, is, you know, our sacraments use oil, water, bread, wine, everyday things to say, this, this is what conducts sanctity. Uh, it's always been a very tactile faith. And, and Pope Francis yesterday in his sermon, three times at the very beginning, preaching on that passage of the Gospel about Thomas, talked about the Lord touching uh, the, the apostles. And I think this is what, what the declaration of someone being a saint does. It allows people to kind of touch the faith in a non-intellectual way. Well, and, and talk about touching and talk about uh, enfleshing. Obviously, part of the process yesterday, part of the ceremony yesterday, involved a sliver of skin from uh, John the Twenty Third and a vial of blood from uh, Pope John Paul II. Right? That this 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 is part of that, as you say, very tactile nature uh, of this tradition. Oh yeah, when you you know when you go through the churches of Rome, you you know the tour books will will tell you you know this saint's head is here and that one's arm is buried over there. I mean you know this is this very old tradition in our church, uh, and and a wonderful one because you know at the heart of the the Catholic faith is this is is this belief quite different from say Eastern religions, quite different from certain strands of uh, you know Socratic Neoplatonism. Is, is its tactile nature. We, we don't believe as Catholics that the materialness of our lives, the, 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 uh, is something to be gotten past. Uh, Christ redeems us in our flesh and, and, and took on flesh in order to redeem us. And so this is a central thing that was challenged in the early Church by the Gnostics and, and others, and, and there is, and is, is an ongoing temptation that I think this Pope, uh, Pope Francis, is very uh, concerned about. He's constantly saying, go out and be among the poor, you will meet Christ among the poor. Uh, he doesn't want us, you know, stuck in the sacristy talking to each other. He um, wants us out there in the world. And, and, of course, we'll be very interested to see who, uh, as Pope Francis's reign goes forward, who else gets to be a saint. Uh, I think that'll probably tell us a lot. And Michael Sean Winters, as usual, you've told us a lot. Uh, his blog is distinctly Catholic at the National Catholic Reporter. He's the author of several books, including most recently God's Right Hand, How Jerry Falwell Made God a Republican and Baptized the American Right. Thanks for joining us today. Always good to be with you, Colin. All right. We'll be back uh, with something a little bit more earthly, and that's uh, baseball and geography and big data. Go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the good old saints go marching in. I want to be, 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 be. And then the very good old saints go marching in. got the hollowed out version of capital in the 21st century the one you can keep hard candy in mmm candy today's show was produced by betsy kaplan and me our intern is skylar magnoli greg hill tweets for us at wnpr colin and appeared in our intro katie talarski is our executive producer the part of bill curry was played by magic johnson for show pages articles and videos of the faith middleton show staff beating up mr met visit our website wnpr.org on tomorrow's show, the buzz on Connecticut's bee industry. And now, back to Colin. You know, we don't condone violence on this show, but 
Everybody beats up Mr. Met sooner or later. All right. So uh, joining us right now is uh, Steve Russian. Uh, he is, of course, an award-winning sports journalist and the author of several books, including two favorites of mine, The Pint Man and most recently The 34-Ton Bat. He is one of the poets and phrase makers of his field. And it turns out uh, in that capacity, he turns out to be totally unnecessary because thanks to quantitative analysis, thanks to Nate Silver, thanks to the upshot, which is the uh, new Nate Silver type quantitative analysis feature of the New York Times. Everything can be boiled down to its numbers. Uh, no need for poets anymore. Uh, but he joins us now anyway. Steve Russian, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having this dead poet on. <laughs> All right. So, so one of the, what the New York Times did yesterday was they took a lot of information, most of it from the incredibly reliable source called Facebook, uh, and broke it down into zip codes and, and looked at, at rooting uh, alliances and rooting allegiances uh, and sort of tried to figure out uh, if there were things that could be said definitively about who roots for whom depending on where they live. Uh, now, you are the coiner in your capacity as poet and phrase maker of something called the Munson-Dixon line. Uh, I'll let you explain what the Munson-Dixon line is. Well, the Munson-Dixon line is that line that runs through Connecticut at a point that I thought was not completely defined but turns out to be exactly defined, uh, where that separates Red Sox fans uh, from Yankee fans. And I now realize, thanks to the New York Times, that that phrase will be in the first line of my two-line obituary. <laughs> well, you could get involved in some major scandals in between uh, now and your That's departure true. from oh. this earthly coil. So um, so, the, so it looks like, um, and just to sort of help people, I was sort of looking at it today, having a little Rorschach moment with this particular map. Um, and so if you can imagine the state of Connecticut, and then imagine kind of the left hand of a glove, it kind of looks like that. So, there, so the fingers kind of cross the, the left side, the west side of the state. And there's a then there's this kind of thumb that pokes right up with Hartford sitting more or less on the thumbnail. There's like this little thing. And and so, I mean, we can talk about that for a second. And if, by the way, if anybody has been enjoying this quantitative analysis on their own and wants to call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. But Steve Russian, I even think I heard in the slight wistfulness of your tone when you said that you thought you knew that it was impossible to draw this line in a precise uh, place, but now they've done it. Is, is there something kind of cold and mechanistic about actually knowing? Is, some, is there some Yeatsian part of you that would prefer to have this be this sort of mythic kind of thing that, that didn't really exist in zeros and ones? Yeah, there's a, it's a little bit neat. That, you know, there's that spot, four corners, where you can stand with your feet and hands in four different states and feel like you're in four different places. Uh, so I guess it's a little bit cool that we know there's this exact line that that uh, all of Hartford and, and the surrounding suburbs are, are Yankee. But, uh, yeah, I did sort of like trying to debate or wonder where the line was, even as you were driving through the state. I was in Los Angeles earlier this week and had to drive from Dodger Stadium past the Angel Stadium, and I felt like I could tell where it was going from Dodger to Angel territory. This was before the Times published this map. And at some point <laughs> in Orange County, you run into the, the vinyl banners that the Angels have put up as you approach, get closer to the stadium. But uh, in my mind, it was somewhere near La Mirada as I passed it on the freeway. And when I looked at this map, the line is exactly La Mirada. As you, uh, <laughs> on this side, it's like 56% Dodgers, and on this side, it's 56% Angels. So, um, you know, in that sense, I was happy to have my suspicion confirmed. But um, when when it doesn't go 
where I thought it was, I kind of yearned for when it was ill-defined. Well, I think the other thing that, I mean, in some ways I find this less interesting than I might find it, but I think I'll find it more interesting when there's trending data, when it's possible to sort of look over a period of time and see what's happening. I mean, the Times, even you know, using the older da- data that it could cite anyway, made the not surprising case that that big red blob of Red Sox territory is expanding in Connecticut, that, that perhaps Hartford has tipped the other way towards the Yankees, but if there's there is it does look like somebody knocked over uh, you know a little jar of of red finger paint or something and it's bleeding all over Connecticut. And and worse than that, the Times has since published a map of the second most popular teams in each zip code, and the Red Sox are the second most popular team in Washington State, in northern Minnesota, <laughs> on the east coast of Florida. <laughs> all kinds of other places that they wouldn't have been 11 years ago, and they probably won't be 11 years from now. But uh, So this is definitely a map that's going to have a lot of shifting plates. Well, I would think the biggest existential challenge posed by the New York Times project this weekend is the the challenge posed to fans of the New York Mets. Not that they didn't already have plenty of existential challenges anyway, but basically, statistically, neither they nor their team exists, right? Well, exactly. They, I think they made this map of second favorite teams just to put the Mets somewhere. Now they can put the Mets <laughs> as the second favorite team in Queens. Um, so when you talk about beating up on Mr. Matt, that was really the, the, the second thing I noticed about that map was that the Mets basically didn't exist. The Yankees are the second most fa- most popular team in so many of these places where they're not the favorite. Uh, they get almost 10% of the fandom, no matter what zip code you click on. The Cubs have a surprisingly high number of random fans around the country as well. But the Mets... Uh, the Mets didn't exist without this map of second favorite teams, and, o- and then and only then it's the area around Shea Stadium and, and, and or around Shea yeah. Stadium, City Field. I'm beating up on Mr. Met again. I don't <laughs> know that's the ballpark. The um, well, it it does raise questions about what do you have to do to be popular? Because the, I mean, the Cubs mercilessly mercilessly punish their fans. I mean, it just it's so unrelenting. And yet, when you look at the Chicago map that they showed, where they divided up the the White Sox versus the Cubs, I mean, the Cubs seem to be paying no price whatsoever no. in terms of popularity for the misery they inflict on the people who love them. But the poor Mets, who also are not necessarily a particularly frequently rewarding team, uh, it just doesn't seem right somehow. It seems the lesson is you really have to commit. You either win 27 world championships or you commit to 106 years of, of complete futility. And anything in between gets you not noticed. You know, they, they pointed out the problem that the Padres have, Mexico to the south, desert to the east, ocean to the west, and the Angels and the Dodgers to the north. Um, we understand their, their issues. But the, the Mets, you would think, with a, a World Series win, would be back literally on the map. But uh, that doesn't seem like it's imminent. Is is there something about this project that's um, intrinsically linked to baseball? In other words, would you expect to see, if they did this with football, if they explored Giants versus Patriots or, or anything else, the kind of hardened-off realities? Is there something about baseball, maybe just because the age of the sport or something, that, that creates a real interest even in this kind of information? Definitely. Baseball is unique in that regard for so many reasons. But I think college sports would make a fascinating map of this kind. If you've ever taken as I did, Metro North from New Haven to to Penn Station during the old Big East basketball tournament. People would get on in, 
and Yukon hats and on in Syracuse hats and on in Villanova hats. Um, I would be really curious to see where sort of the Yukon T-shirts run out and the Syracuse T-shirts start because they, they aren't defined necessarily by state borders. It's the same thing with kind of a whaler's belt. Where do the whaler hats end and the rangers hats begin? Um, so I think other sports could make for some interesting maps. Baseball, though, with a hundred and some years behind it, a lot of these things are, are so entrenched that even with winning and losing and the, the, the team's current record, they're not going to change. I like the way, way you just sort of casually tossed off that Whalers reference, as if it's not completely bizarre that the most popular form of sports gear in Connecticut, the thing that's sold at the airport, is the gear from a franchise that hasn't existed in decades and, and is a <laughs> hockey franchise to boot. Far more popular than ever. And when I mention the Whalers belt, I think you might actually see an actual Whalers belt yeah. <laughs> somewhere in that Whalers belt. They probably sell them at Bradley. Well, they should. Actually, after I develop my uh, Tomas Piketty for Idiots uh, for Dummies phone app, I will now, I will then, the next, my next project will be a Whaler's Belt. Hey, Steve Russian, we only have about 60 seconds left, if that. Um, as a, a great poet of sports, does it bother you when they do a story like this that's just data as opposed to data used to illustrate some larger cosmic point? Well, what I found a little bit disturbing, though, I, if I think about it, it's probably not all that bad, is just the mining of. I know when you go on Facebook, it's going to be completely public, and you're just serving as uh, as an interest uh, uh, data for for this company. Um, and I thought, but gee, is this kind of an invasion of privacy? Then I realized that being having your sports allegiance private is is completely nonsensical. It's like being a closet braggart or something. There's <laughs> nobody who doesn't want their sports allegiance known. So this is kind of seems like the best use for big data, uh, as opposed to. You know, the, the information that we would like kept private, although I suppose many Mets fans would have liked that information kept private as well. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly something you want scrubbed from your record right now. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today, Steve Russian. Thank you, Colin. All right. Thanks for a great scramble, too. Thanks to Kion Wolf and Betsy Kaplan uh, for wrangling all this together. Tomorrow, be venom. Just be, just be a little pinch, uh, but you'll feel so much better afterwards. <laughs> Honey, I'm sorry I gave you a heart attack the last time I recorded you, and I promise I'm not recording right now, but I'm wondering, who was your favorite pope? Are you kidding me? Pope Alexander VI. He bought his way into the papacy in 1492. Okay. I'm just going to upload this to SoundCloud. Oh. Uh. Sorry, honey.